Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey there. Welcome to The Hash here on Coindesk TV and the Coindesk Podcast Network. I'm Zach Seward. we got Will Foxley and Jensen Assey on the show today. We're here to get you up to speed on all that's going on in crypto. And we're going to start with my favorite topic, CBDC, <laughs> Central Bank Digital Currencies. Let's talk about the U.S. Treasury. Thinking about how to keep the U.S. CBDC, should there ever be one? Private, right? There's different privacy norms in the US as opposed to, say, China, where CBDC development has gone full steam ahead. Treasury is taking a cautious approach, trying to make sure that they can balance the benefits of putting this stuff on a digital ledger with the rightful concerns around people having privacy, right? And people having their transactions not monitored by the government that is issuing this CBDC. So the digital dollar conversation still very much in play. Unclear if it's going to come to pass in the US, but the Treasury is doing its due diligence, or so it seems. I'll toss this straight to Jen for her initial thoughts. What's your take on this uh, Treasury headline? I have so many takes on this, right? And I think that you can only really know how people are going to receive things and how they're going to work if you have an MVP and you do a pilot like so many countries are doing, right? Brazil is doing a pilot, Australia is doing a pilot, and they're testing out some of these wholesale and retail use cases. I think that that kind of information would benefit this discussion. Maybe the US is going to look to pilots overseas and compile information from those projects and then put it to work here in the US. One of the interesting tidbits in the reporting about the CBDCs that I picked up on this morning when I was reading these stories is that there is a concern that CBDCs are going to be so fast and so effective that it could encourage bank runs or not encourage, but there's no process in place to prevent bank runs. People are going to be able to get their money so quickly that, you know, there's not going to be any kind of infrastructure to to stop that. I think the conversations around that are going to be really interesting because if they want to prevent something that the current financial system prevents, it's going to take like a whole infrastructure change. It's going to take a whole rethinking of how these financial systems work. I don't know. You know how I feel about CBDCs. So that's like my take on everything outside of of the privacy stuff. But I'll pass it off to Will and maybe we'll come back to the privacy. 
Yeah, I mean, this headline straight out three years ago, so not, nothing too <laughs> new here. But we can go through the last three years and talk about what CBDCs have meant for the US, how political parties are thinking about them, and how individuals are thinking about them. I think at this point, most people think that some sort of CBDC-like structure will emerge. Whether it has a token or not doesn't really matter. Basically, the idea is just instant payments and that the Fed or the Treasury will have more uh, granular data on American spending habits than they do right now. And so it might be a CBDC, it might be something else, but probably will have those two components in and of itself. We're seeing so far that there's going to be a very bipartisan issue around CBDCs. That'd be like states, especially Republican-leaning states, are going to lean against CBDCs. Texas and Florida have already sort of moved against this. Florida already implemented some sort of quote-unquote ban on any federal CBDC. That won't really hold up in court ever because Florida is a part of the union, so it's not like they're able to not use federal money. But it was a nice political stunt. And I think as we go into the next election and maybe 2028 election, when something could actually happen, this would be like a very big subject. So that's one thing to watch out of this. The second is if other countries do adopt this and the U.S. wants to preserve its regime as like the head of the global currency with the dollar, they might get more serious about this. But I think for right now, this is sort of a mute discussion because the Fed has Fed down. It's rolling out in July. It has SWIFT. It's able to offboard anybody they want. They can onboard whoever they want. And that's not going to change necessarily just the different token solution or a different tech solution. They already have the moat because they have the network effect of the dollar and its warships. Zach, I'll throw it over to you. You have Yellen a few days ago saying how important it is for the dollar to be, you know, that that critical global currency. So that is very much in play. I think you're right to bring up sort of the political context because the CBDC has emerged as sort of a political lightning rod in recent months, despite no seeming forward progress on this actually happening. So a lot of the rhetoric around the CBDCs, you know, here's big bad government prying into your wallet. It kind of makes sense that Steele here, who's making this speech, will go out and say, hey, we're really working on this privacy stuff, guys. Like the big bad government boogeyman may not be baked into this equation should we ever get there. So I think that political context is important um, because it is a little bit of cover from what has been increasingly like hot rhetoric being sort of rained down on the Biden administration in this instance. Um, So the fact that this official will come out and say, hey, like, we're looking into privacy enhancing technology. Should we do this? Certainly fits interestingly into the political conversation around it. Because I think you're right, Will. Like, this is not, you know, especially new, this, this, some of the stuff that we're seeing. But all of a sudden, the rhetoric around it is quite new. Uh, so the fact that they're ramping up calls for really looking into these privacy enhancing technologies, you know, should they ever do this thing, I think is interesting in the political context, at least. Uh, Will, saw your hand tossing it to you. Can we go back to that Janet Yellen photo? I absolutely love it. And I want to look at it for one more second because it's it's so good. Oh, no, we just scrolled past it. Maybe we'll come back in a second. It's a great photo. She looks like a little... I don't know why they picked that photo. It's like, uh, or took it. Obviously, Coindesk didn't take it. But whoever did take that photo was kind of conniving right there, right? Like, she looks like... She's up to no good. They're playing against a CBDC bias here. Zach, going back to the, the privacy concerns here. I do feel like this is just giving lip service to some people who are afraid of a CBDC rolling out because I think when it does happen, the US government, that's not, they're not going to care about that, right? The IRS already has most of your information about your spending habits. So why would they you know, take a step forward and try to issue some sort of privacy around this? They have an interest in knowing about your spending habits. It just comes down to like the economics of the situation, right? They want to know where capital is flowing and they have granular data that only betters their models, only betters what they're trying to do. 
obviously us on the hash and i think people in crypto in general would not want that but i think when this does come out they're not really going to do much with that jen over to you yeah, I mean, we say this all the time, but I think there's so much education needed. I think this has become a political talking point. People in the industry talk about it a lot. But I think when we brought in out the pool, you know, the everyday man on the street maybe doesn't really understand the intricacies of a CBDC. Maybe they think it's just a digital dollar. There's some data that's pointed to in that research where Americans were sur surveyed. I'm not sure the size of the sample pool. And they said 49% said that they just didn't know. And so I think maybe the elections are doing some of the job at, at kind of educating people, but there's like a larger gap here for Americans to really understand what a CBDC, I think, would mean. But Zach, I'll give it to you for last words. All right, re really quickly, some additional polling sample size three. Quickly, do you think that a U.S. digital dollar is going to be deployed? It's still very much in question as to whether or not it will happen, according to these remarks. Will, yes or no? In a CBDC format, I think in the next five years, yes. Jen, you? I think yes. I think no. I'm holding out. I think no. <laughs> Do you really think no, or are you just going against us? Even I a mean, pilot a little, program, though. Like, it mean no, I really think no. I really think no. Yeah. Okay. okay. All right. Well, we'll have to wait and see. The biggest CBD shill on the show doesn't think it's going to happen. <laughs> Bullish. Bullish. Wow. It's always keeping us on our toes. What is Zach? That's Zach. Great Zach this morning, Zach. Hey, good job. <laughs> head fake every now and then. All right, Jen, I'm talking to you for the next one. <laughs> All, right. All right. We are talking about MicroStrategy and Michael Saylor. Haven't heard from Saylor in a while. Michael Saylor said that recent enforcement actions by U.S. regulators have made it clear that the industry is destined to be Bitcoin focused. In an interview with Bloomberg on Tuesday, he said it's pretty clear that the regulators don't see a legitimate path forward for cryptocurrencies. And so the entire industry is kind of destined to be rationalized down to a Bitcoin focused industry with maybe half a dozen to a dozen other proof-of-work tokens. Will, tossing this off to you, what do you make of Michael Saylor's uh, comments, given all that Bitcoin he holds? Uh, I don't know. Drug dealer wants to sell drugs, thinks they're good. That's kind of how I see all these headlines, right? Like, we're going to go to the person who has a bag of something and get their opinion on it. And to be fair, Michael Saylor did come into the space in 2020, and purchase Bitcoin and didn't purchase anything else. And they had the ability to purchase anything else, right? Like they made huge bets on Bitcoin, which sort of shows you that Michael Saylor was in firm control of MicroStrategy. Board wasn't really going to go against him. He had convinced them. So he could have purchased really anything at that point. And MicroStrategy chose to just follow along its one path with Bitcoin and Bitcoin only. Since then, they've only been Bitcoin only. And I think that does show you like some conviction around this and the conviction that hey, these other tokens are securities. Like They had to have some sort of rationale for not investing in other things, especially when these other tokens, namely Ethereum, actually did better on a price basis and a percentage price gain than Bitcoin over that same period. Right? There was a lot of incentives for investing in different things uh, versus just Bitcoin. They chose Bitcoin only. So to them, I will give them props for that. That being said, I think a lot of times we just like to confirm our bias. There's a lot of people out there who don't like Ethereum and they continue to shill it as a security or say it's a security. But these people are not securities lawyers. So why should we listen to them? And yet they continue to chirp on Twitter and say that Ethereum is a security. We have so much documentation from the actual people who are, have the jobs to label what is a security and what is not a security saying that Ethereum is not. So there's a little bit of a cognitive dissonance there, I'd say, just from the general grouping that he's in. Zach, I'll throw it over to you. Yeah, this is a little bit of wishful thinking, I think. But I think certainly people have come to potentially this conclusion, right? If Bitcoin is the only thing that works in the current sort of infrastructure of the crypto markets. 
according to at the SEC and Gary Gensler's sort of stated opinion, then one could see a world in which Bitcoin becomes, uh, you know, the dominant factor in those markets. I think new infrastructures will emerge, whether that's like, you know, special purpose broker dealers that can clear a lot of these securities. I think we're seeing that with some smaller players who are getting some of those clearances to do so. And those players may be either gobbled up by bigger players or bigger players will follow that playbook, right? So I think in the context of the current market infrastructure, a statement like this does make sense. There is evidence to suggest that that may be the case. But I think should we look ahead a few years and we see some of these market infrastructures become updated to account for security designations for a lot of these assets, then maybe this prediction doesn't ultimately hold true. So I think there's two things at play here when I see this. And there's certainly quite a bit of bag holder bias when you're one of the biggest Bitcoin holders in the world. So that's also certainly in play. But I think this does sort of speak to a bigger thing going on in the Bitcoin community saying, you know, Gary Gensler has it right. You know, he's, he's wind in our sails as we look to hyper Bitcoinization and Bitcoin being the one true coin. So it is kind of funny, I think, to see sort of that embrace on the Bitcoin side of things of this SEC crackdown. It may be short-sighted, it may be misguided to sort of stand apart and distance from the, you know, the dirty crypto community, but you are certainly seeing a bit of it uh, unfold with some triumphalism, you know, some chest beating on the Bitcoin side saying, hey, Gary thinks we're cool, that's great for us. So yeah, interesting to watch this play out. Will, I, I think I saw your hand, so I'll throw it right back to you. Kind of a thought on this. So the proof of work part is interesting in this. Michael Saylor said that there might be a few of the proof of work tokens that exist alongside Bitcoin. There seems to be some weird thinking that somehow proof of work is the reason for something being a security or not a security in token land. So everything besides Bitcoin. But historically, if we go back to the arguments that a lot of Bitcoin maximalists and other groups made against Ethereum and other tokens, those were basically calling them securities, but those tokens were still proof of work at the time, right? Ethereum didn't merge to proof of stake till last year. And so we're seeing sort of like these old arguments emerge again against things being labeled as securities. But the basis for that argument has changed for when it back in the day was Ethereum had an ICO and they sold a bunch of Ethereum early to investors. And that's why it was a security in the eyes of Bitcoin maximalists. Now it's changed towards, well, Ethereum is now proof of stake. And so it's a security. And I, I just think like a lot of this, again, is just like really fumbled logic. They, they really are just like bag holding and don't have a thought about why they like something or not. And it's odd to see that repeated from a corporation, right? Uh, especially when they're so Bitcoin friendly and yet they're like, oh, maybe we could have some other tokens as long as they're proof of work, though. It just seems like odd. I just want to make a quick note about that. Jen, I'll throw it to you. You know, when Michael Saylor stepped away from the CEO position, I thought that we would hear less Bitcoin news attached to the MicroStrategy narrative and we might hear other news coming out of MicroStrategy, but that hasn't really come to fruition or maybe we only follow the crypto news. So so we're biased. But I, I do kind of feel like maybe he is pumping his bags. He has $4 billion worth of Bitcoin on the MicroStrategy uh, balance sheet. And I want to bring up the last time we spoke about MicroStrategy, Michael Saylor was saying, you know, he's looking at how to incorporate Bitcoin's technology into some of the software that they're building over at MicroStrategy. So I think he's doubling down on, on this narrative, predicting that Bitcoin's going to hit $250,000 because to him, that is the next logical step. And if I were in his position, maybe I would do the same thing. I'll take it. We'll take it. Interesting. Good stuff all around. Imagine having $200 million, making a trade with it, and then only earning three bucks. Can't even buy much with that these days, can you? That's the tale of an arbitrage bot on top of MakerDAO, which used a flash loan in order to turn a profit, though a small one at that. 
This whole process involves something, again, called flash loans and then turning these arbitrage bots into profit seekers on top of these DeFi applications. Typically, these traders are looking for a little bit more juice from the squeeze, but in this case, they didn't quite do that much. Zach, I want to throw the story over to you to get your thoughts on it. I mean, to me, this is sort of like a run-of-the-mill DeFi story. Like A lot of people run these arbitrage bots, spin off to the wild, they load up with ETH and hope they make a profit. And this one, to be fair, did make a profit, just not that much. $3.24 to be precise. Maybe you could get a small juice with that, Will. That sounds pretty tasty. But yeah, I think it is run of the mill, but it goes to show DeFi is weird, right? Like DeFi is weird. Like stuff like this happens. Like flash loans in and of themselves are weird, right? Where you're borrowing money and deploying money in the same transaction. I don't even know. There was all these hacks like BZX, which led to the whole ookie thing down the road, like was a flash loan attack. So you see a lot of these flash loan attacks that uh, basically are used to sort of poke holes in various protocols that aren't fully battle-tested quite yet. So anyway, DeFi stays weird and experimental, and you get these interesting sort of on-chain findings that are weird and strange, like $200 million. People love big numbers. $200 million to make a $3 profit is something that is very striking and something that is happening in the wilds of DeFi as we speak. But yeah, people love to game these systems. They love to find ways to make money out of these systems that are uh, permissionless by design. And this one may have backfired, but maybe there are other trades that have been... uh, much more handsomely profitable than the measly 324. I'm sure at one point, uh, the person deploying these bots uh, has reaped some big rewards. So yeah, DeFi remains a bit inhospitable, I think, to unsophisticated, maybe even just regular old human actors who you know are at play against big whales, well-resourced teams, and people who are deploying uh, autonomous agents to uh, reap the rewards of these various spreads in the DeFi markets. Yeah, I don't know what my takeaway is besides DeFi being weird, but that's not especially new, noteworthy, or a headline. I don't know. Jen, what do you think? Is this good or bad? Well, oh no. Oh no. Is this, it's the, is this is good or bad, bad segment? Is it good yeah. or bad? There's always a good or bad segment with Jen, but maybe things aren't just so binary. I think this instance actually, maybe if you want it to be, it could be a good thing. I think it's sort of a neutral thing. That's actually how these things are supposed to work, right? So if you like back up the truck a little bit, a lot of these DeFi applications, they work as Legos. We have like a lending platform over here. We have a stablecoin platform over here. We have a data oracle over here. And all these things speak to each other. And the only thing that's communicating between them are typically arbitrage bots and price signals. These arbitrage bots are basically little programs that people put on their computers and they spin up. You have to feed them ETH in order to run. And they spend that ETH in order to do trades on chain. And these trades are hoping to make a profit. And what this profit seeking does is actually reduce the spreads of prices between different assets. Because in the traditional world, you have these market makers, these guys, you know, in, in Dallas and London and Singapore running all these programs and all these bots, but they're there physically. In DeFi, you have to do that somehow without the human element. And so you have these bots do it for you. You spin up these bots and let them run. And they basically run until they run out of ether or they make a bad trade and they are just like killed off by the developer because they're not working. In this case, this bot did its thing, right? It secured a $3 profit. So it actually shows you that maybe spreads are getting tighter in DeFi, that it's harder to earn money uh, than ever. A few years ago, you would see like maybe multiple ETH on a trade that was successful, especially with this large of a flash loan behind it. But nowadays, I think things are just getting so much better and things are getting so much tighter. All these uh, different networks and protocols are able to speak to each other in a better way. So you're going to see reduction in prices. You're going to see uh, or reduction in the spreads of prices, I should say. And you're also going to see a reduction in the profits 
for these bots that are running around. Just like in traditional finance, where we saw a decrease in the BIPs or the spreads between trades over the years, we're going to see the same thing with DeFi. Right now, we're in that dollar range, and in the future, we'll get down to like these tiny, tiny percentages. How about that, Jen? Is that pretty good? It was pretty good. I love a good Will Explains segment. Keep them coming. I'm just you. learning. You know, you're welcome. Shall we move love off it. to Mexico? We should. I'll All go to right. Mexico. Let's go to Mexico. Yeah. Uh, Strike is expanding its Lightning Network-based cross-border payment service in Mexico. This is the largest market for remittances from the U.S. The service is called Send Globally. I believe we've spoken about it on the show before. It's going to be available starting today and will provide a faster, cheaper option for people who are sending remittances. So how this works for our audience is you can send U.S. dollars using this application. It gets converted to Bitcoin and sent via the Lightning Network. And then when it reaches the recipient, it's converted into the local fiat currency and deposited into your bank account. Will, what do you make of this story? I'm not sure what I make of this story. I, I am positive and bullish on growth of like these Lightning applications and any sort of like Web3, Bitcoin, Ethereum product that brings dollars and other like crypto dollars into people's hands. Like I, like I like that. That's a good thing. I don't know about all these applications moving into different countries. I don't really understand the licensing regimes behind these things. I often see headlines that this application has now been able to operate in this jurisdiction. But I'm always confused why I wasn't able to do that in the first place if it truly is like a Web3, DeFi, or Lightning application in the first place, right? Like why do they need the licensing? I think it does come down to like a lot of these things are actually more tied into traditional financial system that we're willing to say. And that's why they always have to roll out these headlines, right? Saying that like, hey, we're now in Mexico or now we're in El Salvador or now we're in Peru or wherever it may be. I think it's because like a lot of these things are still basically TradFi applications. They're not really Bitcoin applications first. To be fair, that's just probably the state of the world, right? Like if you want to go from crypto to cash, it's a lot harder than people think about and you need a lot of these licenses. At the same time, I would like to see a place where like, maybe we don't have to make announcements that we've just crossed borders for the first time. Zach? Yeah, that's the thing. When you interact with these money transmitter licensing regimes, you got to play ball or else you risk getting hit by the regulators. Jen, I'll toss it to you uh, before I come back to that thought. Okay. So I, I think that this is big news. So if we look at some of the numbers, the remittances from the US to Mexico, I think make up 95% of of remittances worldwide. I stand to be fact-checked, but I believe I read that from World Bank data. And so when we think about remittances right now, there are really heavy fees that are associated with them. It takes kind of a long time for people to get the money from the US to Mexico. And speaking from my own experience living overseas, I wasn't sending remittances, but just sending money to a Canadian bank account from wherever in the world I was. It takes a long time and there are a lot of fees associated with it. And so if this technology can make that easier and not have anyone actually have to interact with crypto because of this like regulatory uncertainty or these like really negative headlines or the fact that like crypto feels scary to people, I think is a really good stepping stone in the right direction to this mainstream adoption that we talk about all the time. Zach? Yeah, for me stepping back, I think this is interesting as a trend, right? This is people using the Bitcoin network to send value. And I think, uh, you know, let's put the money transmitting licensing stuff aside. And let's look at sort of real world utility of these blockchain networks. And this is a great example of it, right? These are lightning fast rails that get money to different parts of the world without all the headaches and middlemen that have made the remittance process 
painful and expensive for many, many people who really should have better options out there. So to see this, I think is really important. You're seeing some experimentation around this with LightSpark, which is David Marcus's new thing, obviously more business focused, uh, as opposed to the more retail focused strike in this instance. So I think like it's really cool to see Bitcoin being used for its rails rather than just for the asset that sits on top of it. And I think the fact that people are building these applications on Bitcoin, which is the oldest and arguably the most secure uh, network in the crypto world, um, is fantastic. So bringing these sort of real world uh, app, actual applications to people in a way that can meaningfully improve their financial lives, I think is a great story. And um, if it requires a licensing because you got to cash out to cash, um, so be it. But it is interesting to see these tools being deployed for what they are, rails for transmitting value across the world. Um, hopefully in some ideal state without a bunch of onerous um, governmental restrictions, but we're not there just yet. Will, what do you think? Two quick thoughts before we close out. One, underlying subtext of this whole conversation is about Prime Trust, which Strike was using Prime Trust, a custodian and a banking partner in the US. Prime Trust was just purchased by BitGo last week, according to Coindesk Scoop, or at least an LOI was sent out uh, for that purchase. Look forward to seeing how that changes. Second, with Strike, Again, the opportunity to onboard anyone is a huge win for Bitcoin. I'm looking forward to see how they're able to do it more so using Bitcoin means and less so TradFi means. And I think leaving Prime Trust and being able to do everything in-house only helps that out. Nice, nice. Good thoughts to close that one out. Good thoughts to close out the entire show. That was it for the show today. We had Zach Seward. We had Jen Snassy. We had Will Foxley. We're the hash in three boxes on your screen. <laughs> Thanks for being here, folks. We will talk to you later. Have a great day. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte. After getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals24. That's Chime.com goals24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.